to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I am here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, this is a special bonus episode. Why are we doing this, man? We are doing this because so much good stuff has happened in Ethereum in the last couple weeks. And also our interview with the Winklevoss twins was absolutely fantastic. So it was just too much good content to be put into one single episode. So we're splitting it out and releasing this as a bonus episode. Uh, the big picture stuff, the, the topics that we have today, I think are, are crucial and they definitely deserve their own episode. So we're recording this extra episode for all you Bankless fans. Speaking of Bankless fans, if you guys could please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and give us those five-star reviews so we could show up higher on the charts. There is a bunch of old crypto podcasts that haven't released episodes in months, in years, ever since 2017. And just because they came out in 2017, they still are there. So if you could go to iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen and give us those five-star reviews so we can get Bankless to the top of the crypto podcast charts, we would really appreciate it. Let's spread the revolution, guys. Let's do it. Before we begin, want to talk about our fantastic sponsors today. Our first sponsor is Monolith. If you guys have your assets inside of Ethereum, but you also want to live your life, Monolith for our European customers might be the product for you. They have their DeFi card, which is a Visa card connected to a smart contract wallet on Ethereum so that when you go to the store, you buy your coffee, you buy your groceries, you swipe your Monolith card, and then your DAI gets deducted out of your smart contract wallet, sold for dollars, and then you make a, a, a both a transaction on Ethereum and a transaction on the Visa network really crucial infrastructure for people that want to live a bankless life, but don't really want to compromise and be that weird friend that doesn't have any real money. Uh, <laughs> real money. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so you can download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless visa card today. And then you can get some of the world's economic activity placed onto the Ethereum network. All right, guys, I am super excited to introduce you to our next new sponsor, Ramp. What is holding crypto back? It's really getting fiat into the crypto system. That's what's holding DeFi back. The problem is a new user has to create an account with an exchange to buy some crypto. They have to wire funds. They have to go through a whole bunch of steps. What's holding DeFi apps back? The exact same thing. Users drop off in the signup process and it really limits the DeFi market to hardcore crypto people. But no longer. Ramp solves that. Ramp has a delightfully easy fiat on ramp service. So it lets users get crypto, ETH, DAI, USDC in five minutes or less. That's right, five minutes or less. No exchange needed. And a new user can have crypto right into their account and start using the app. So if you are a developer, this takes about 10 minutes to implement. They've got very easy to use APIs, apps like DeFi apps like Zerion, Ethereum, Taurus are using Ramp. You can visit ramp.network to see how easy this is. This is really an opportunity for DeFi developers to 100x their addressable market size. This is like the ultimate growth hack. And here's what's cool. If you mention Bankless, they will on-ramp the first 100K from your app of USD free. So that's 100K free when you mention Bankless. Go to ramp.network and check it out. R-A-M-P.network. Mention Bankless and check it out. David, first topic. We're going to talk about four things today. First topic does it feel to you like there is a massive mismatch between fundamentals and price going on right now? And, and specifically, I'm talking about Ethereum. Bitcoin's been covered a lot, but Ether, the asset, is there a mismatch going on? What's going on? Yeah, it, it's really hard to value Ether because it's really hard to value these systems as a whole, right? Like crypto systems are inherently impossible to value. There's no price to price to earnings ratio. There's, there's no none of these fundamental metrics that we know about in the legacy world to price these assets. But at the same time, uh, Ether has been, you know, f you know, volatile but flat over the last two years. And the fundamentals of Ethereum have never been greater. Uh, Spencer Noon, 
has put out some fantastic charts on the tweet thread, which we are definitely going to link in the show notes. And if you guys are on Twitter right now, you should definitely just open that up and find his his charts because we're going to go through some of these. Uh, it's it's pretty crazy the fundamental growth that we have seen in Ethereum metrics. If you guys have listened to episode seven, Ether's value mechanisms, a lot of the charts and graphs and data that Spencer put out in this thread directly relate to some of the concepts that we talked about in that episode. What this data and information show is just the increase in fundamentals according to the concepts that we put out in that episode. So we're going to go through some of these today. Yeah, let's take let's take seven from that thread. I think it's a great thread. So the the first is right now on the Ethereum network, we are charting the highest gas that Ethereum has ever consumed. So that's higher than 2017 at peak mania when you know everything was going crazy and everything was was bogged down. It's higher than any time in 2019 and 2020. It's higher than it's ever been. What does that mean, David? Like gas usage, what are we talking about here? You know, why does that matter? The gas usage metric is is a really interesting one. And it really talks about uh, a couple of things. The complexity of transactions being made. So a normal Ether transfer uses the minimum amount of gas at 21,000. Uh, and then more complex things like depositing money into a maker vault, drawing die, doing anything in compound uh, takes more gas because there's more complex transactions. And so, and so what this means is that people are using Ethereum for more complex economic activity more often. A larger amount of fees per block is being spent on Ethereum block space. So Ethereum block space is being sold at a higher, faster rate than than previous. Yeah, so it means network usage is at all-time highs. So more smart smart contracts, more token transfers, more moving of ETH, it's all at all-time highs. And as you said, that's another metric, so maybe we'll talk about this as number two. Transaction fees on Ethereum are about 200K per day. So all of the gas that's being used, as you know, every time you use an Ethereum transaction or interact with a smart contract, you're, you're paying gas. All that gas culminates in a total all those gas fees culminate in a total revenue amount. Right now, that revenue amount per day is 200K on Ethereum. It's been higher in the past, but this is still a very high number. And really, when you compare the transaction fee revenue to all other blockchains, the only comparable blockchain here is actually Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's doing about you know half a million a day, 600,000 a day, something in that range. Whereas Ethereum is hanging out at the, the 200K range Everything else is like $100 a year, like $1,000 a year, basically nothing. The only valuable uh, block space on the market today is the block space of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I'm just saying that from a market perspective because no one else is paying for any of the other block space. They're only paying for the block space on these two networks. This is such an important metric. This directly reflects how much people value these systems. Like how much are people willing to pay to have a transaction included into the respective blockchain? So so Bitcoin and Ethereum have really high daily revenue of block space sales uh, per day. Uh, and this really re relates to uh, how well you can depend on these protocols being here into the future all blockchain protocols need some amount of sustainability through fees. And so the higher fees being paid per day to the blockchain just kind of illustrates the longevity that these systems are going to have. Like all businesses need revenue to, to survive and blockchains are the exact same thing. So if you see your blockchain of choice bringing in a ton of fee revenue, you know that your product is in demand. And that's exactly what's going on with Bitcoin and Ethereum here. And Ethereum especially... I don't know if you guys have been trying to make transactions over the last month, but GUI prices have been super high. And that just means that everyone wants to use the network. Uh, and so it just means it's just a fantastic indicator that the demand for Ethereum is increasing. And it's and the cool thing, like we've we've had higher transaction fees on a daily basis that you've said, Ryan, but I don't think we've ever seen it this high sustained for so long. It's been a very high number for oh, like two months now where previously it was maybe just a couple blips you know a couple of days of really high transaction fees this is slow steady growth in daily revenue from transaction fees which i just think is is super bullish for the long-term health of ethereum because that's what blockchains need but then also we need to talk about eip 1559 
when we EIP 1559 comes in, the majority of these transaction fees are burned, which means that the scarcity of ether uh, is increasing because we are burning all of these transaction fees. Got to plug episode seven again, because that's great. We go over that in episode seven. Every time a transaction on Ethereum is used and consumes gas and consumes some fees in the future, ETH will actually be burnt. So Ether, the asset, will be burnt and the amount of Ether in existence will actually decrease. That is a scarcity mechanic that is going to be coming to Ethereum possibly this year and certainly in ETH 2.0 uh, when it ships. So that sort of links all of this usage to actual scarcity of Ether, the asset, establishing it further as a store of value. So super exciting to see that. Now, some people are concerned that the gas fees are high and transaction fees are high and they can't get their transactions through. You know, the gas is too damn high, right? Uh, I am concerned about that a little bit in the short run, but I think in the medium term, what that's going to do is put more pressure on layer two scalability options on Ethereum and get more of these transactions off chain, still secured by Ethereum, but push them off chain. There's some roll-up technology coming down the pike for that. Uh, even Edamar, our, our guest in the last, uh, the previous episode, episode um, 13, I believe it was, he, he talked about incorporating that in the Argent wallet. So I think this kind of pressure, while painful a little bit in the short run, these high gas fees, will actually lead to a more scalable Ethereum with more transactions per second in the medium to long term. So I'm bullish there. But let's talk about the third fundamental indicator here, and that's users. So daily active users is now 300K uh, wallets. So 300K, possibly individuals, groups. We, we don't know exactly uh, who they are, but this is close to the highest it's ever been. So in this number, Dave, it hasn't been seen in over two years. So we're at the highest amount of users we've been since the previous bull market. What does that mean? That just means that there are so, there's a lot of life on Ethereum, right? And so the ICO mania was the last time that Ether really experienced this bull market, right? So for a couple months, Ether was the Ether price was between $400 and $1,400. And that's the last time we had you know, 380,000 daily active addresses. Uh, addresses are never a perfect measure of users, but daily active addresses is actually pretty, uh, it's actually much closer than just raw aggregate addresses. Because, you know, if you're using uh, Ethereum, you're probably using the same address in, in a single day period. So it's more reflective of the actual raw number of people using the Ethereum blockchain on a daily basis. So like the, the interesting thing is, is that the last time we've saw this amount of daily active users, Ether price was, you know, $1,000, $800, somewhere around that mark. And, and today it's $200. And so there's this just mismatch. Not to say that the right price of Ether was $1,000 back in 2017, but that's also to say that maybe the right price of Ether today isn't $200 either. Um, it's likely somewhere between those two numbers. And, and maybe $1,000 or $1,400 was too high, but... Uh, if if we have the same amount of daily active users as we did when it was it was then maybe the uh, $200 price range for ether is a little bit too low one other thing about daily actives is um it's important to think that each ethereum address is really it's like a bank account so um you know i own multiple eth addresses i'm sure you do too david so it doesn't necessarily map one to one to a user but the sec the second thing i'd say is you know, some of these addresses can actually represent entire companies, entire organizations, in, entire capital pools. So in that way, it's a it's sort of a one-to-many kind of mapping. So we can't tell exactly how many users are using this, but we know we've got 380K bank accounts that are active on a daily basis on the Ethereum network. Some of these are individuals with multiple addresses, but some of these are entire companies, entire capital pools with just one single address. So it definitely is a positive indicator. And it's also worth noting that Ethereum and blockchain systems care much more about capital being used more so than individuals using them. Like the fundamentals of blockchains depend on the total amount of capital being pushed through their system rather than the total individual number of users. Uh, and so I really like that analogy. There's 380,000 individual bank accounts. Never mind if that's 380,000 uh, bank accounts owned by one person, which would be ridiculous. But just for the example that I'm about to talk about, like 
that's still 380,000 different users of Ethereum. Like that's still kind of the metric that we're really going for. Yeah, one of these addresses is Coinbase, for example, right? Right, And Coinbase has billions in assets under its purview and under its care. So yeah, it's, it's, that's absolutely the right way to think about it. An- another really interesting metric here is the sheer amount of stable coins that have been issued on Ethereum in the past few months, really. We're at 7 billion in stable coins. What's this about? So this is definitely a function of the macro environment at large. Like everyone wants dollars and crypto dollars are especially... Uh, especially sought after because of some of their uh, advantages. Like you don't need a bank account to use them. There's no, uh, there's, they're very easy to get a hold of. They're very easy to transport. Uh, but what this really goes towards is the narrative of Ethereum as an internet settlement layer, uh, a settlement layer for value. So if you have an asset, you might as well put it on Ethereum. And you know, since the world wants dollars, there's a global squeeze for dollars, and especially a global squeeze for dollars that are not hosted in a bank account. Uh, Ethereum is just a great uh, platform to use that for. So for the for the dollar, the international dollar market, Ethereum is being leveraged as a as a settlement layer to manage internet dollars, crypto dollars, and it's just a fantastic use case of Ethereum. So on that theme, there's also an increasing amount of Bitcoin getting sucked into the Ethereum gravity well. So that number has has drastically increased as well. There's now 25 million in Bitcoin. Now some of these are Bitcoin IOUs, basically secured by uh, BitGo, a, a custody agent. The example of that is WBTC. But 25 million in Bitcoin on Ethereum, many of this uh, amount starting to use other DeFi protocols like Maker, it just seems like Ethereum is establishing this, this use case of sucking all of these other assets, assets like gold, assets like US dollars, now assets like Bitcoin into its economy. What's your take on that? Bitcoin tokenized on Ethereum. Yeah, we've had WBTC for a pretty long time, and it's kind of just been quiet. You know, there's been some amount of BTC issued. It got integrated into Compound, but it really wasn't this like rocket of a product that that really launched. And, you know, there's plenty of of criticisms about WBTC because it's, you know, just a it's basically an ERC-20 token that the centralized company uh, commits to redeeming for a real Bitcoin if you ever use it. So it's not really that crypto economic pure system that we really are looking for. But it's kind of like the beta of Bitcoin on Ethereum, in my opinion. Uh, it's, a, it's a signal of, of what's to come. And as soon as MakerDAO put WBTC into Ethereum, we saw the amount of WBTC on Ethereum just skyrocket, right? One, one day, in one single transaction, the amount of WBTC doubled from like 1,500 to, to 3,500. And then, and then a couple days later, we saw another minting of 1,000 BTC on Ethereum. So... The, the gravity well of Ethereum is definitely pulling in all assets. And Bitcoin is definitely one of the lowest hanging fruits for assets to come to Ethereum. We've seen Bitcoin uh, have difficulties in finding utility other than just being held by, uh, by your people's ledgers, by people's cold storage wallets. And you know the Lightning Network really hasn't done what Bitcoiners have wanted it to do. And I think Ethereum is offering a very compelling like alternative settlement network for Bitcoin because you can do things in DeFi with Bitcoin. Uh, and so the, the, the compromise of using WBTC apparently isn't that big of a deal for people who are interested in getting their Bitcoin inside of MakerDAO, inside of Compound, you know, doing a non-taxable event by minting DAI so you don't have to sell your, your Bitcoin. All the things that we love DeFi for or Ether for, but now you can use it for Bitcoin. Uh, and that's just WBTC, right? So REN protocol BTC has also just launched and uh, it launched a couple days ago, starting with two BTC. And now I believe there's 35 in there today. I haven't checked this morning. Uh, TBTC is having some tr- uh, struggles to get out the gate. But when it does, I suspect that people will also be minting TBTC. So the race for tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum is on. It's on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the big questions I think people are asking and and you asked as we're going through those metrics, David is all right. So why the mismatch here? Why isn't the price of ETH up right now? Now, I think there's a really important distinction that uh, people have to get in their minds. And I think we've, we've talked about this 
at numerous times across our previous episodes, David, but, but that's this, the asset is not the network. So there are two things here, two commodities within Ethereum. The first commodity that we talk about a lot is Ether, the asset. So this has limited scarcity. There's 110 million ETH, uh, you know, producing at about 4% per year. That's going to drop to close to to 1% after ETH2 is deployed. That's an asset with some level of scarcity. But there's also another scarce commodity within the Ethereum uh, economy, and that's actual block space. So block space is produced at a rate of about six uh, 6,000 per day. Um, each block has about 10, you know, space for 10 million gas. So those are the computational units that you can fit within block space. But those are two separate commodities. You've got the asset and then you've got the, the network. So Ethereum block space and Ethereum the asset. And those are two separate markets as well. So people can be bullish and excited about Ether, the, the asset, independent of being bullish and excited for Ethereum block space. So those two markets don't have to go up in tandem. That said, they often have in the past. So when there has been increased demand on Ethereum, the network, uh, that is highly correlated with increased ETH price. So previously, when we saw the, the highest gas ever consumed on the Ethereum network, that was back in late 2017, early 2018. We also saw the highest ETH price as well. So one question about ETH prices, well, will that sort of revert to its mean? And will all of this network activity start to translate into more direct short to medium term price increases of Ether, the asset? What's your take on that? So we need to remind ourselves that this is the early days of these systems, right? And so you know, really, you only find true price discovery after a strong period period of maturity. And we are simply not there yet. Like Ethereum, the fundamentals change on a whim. We don't have that much historical uh, comparisons to make. Like price discovery for not just Ether, but also Bitcoin still hasn't taken, uh, taken hold, right? Like that's why these systems are so volatile. And it's worth reminding ourselves that Bitcoin is not a store of value. It is a speculative store of value. People are speculating on it becoming a store of value like gold into the future, but it's not one today. And the same goes true for Ethereum, right? Ethereum is a speculation on, Ether is a speculation that Ethereum will be the internet economy platform for the whole entire world. It is not that today. And so I've heard people call like, Bitcoin is an option on a store of value. And if Ether is the same thing for the world economy, like Ether is an option for the, the fundamental asset of an, an internet settlement layer for value. Uh, and we're not there yet. And so when, when prices change, these markets are so incredibly reflexive because the value of these things are really inside of people's heads. They're not on pen and paper. They're not, they're, the, the fundamentals of these things are not yet discovered price is not yet discovered. And so really what dictates price is people's opinions as to what other people will value these things, not necessarily by the fundamentals. Uh, so over time, as these systems mature, I expect fundamentals to really start to take over, but I don't really expect that to happen anytime soon. I'm talking like plus five, 10 years out before fundamentals really start to dictate the price. We're going to be in this long speculative period where speculation dictates price. Um, but at the end of the day, speculation is determined by fundamentals, right? Like I, I would hate for my asset of choice to be something like EOS or uh, Litecoin, which doesn't have any meaningful like block space demand or utility, right? And so speculation does get driven by fundamentals, but it's always speculation first. Yeah, and so I, I read a post, a post on Bankless this week about Ether being potentially double undervalued. So it's undervalued in two ways. Like the first way we talked about, uh, Ethereum network is going crazy in terms of usage and ETH price really isn't following, right? ETH, Ether, Ethereum network usage is all-time high, but Ether price is like 85% down from all-time high, right? So there's a delta there and that's the first sort of undervalued, potentially undervalued uh, like, like way the market's thinking about it right now. But there's a second too, and that's I don't think the market has fully priced in that ether the asset can become a, a like a store a speculative store of value in the same way that that bitcoin does and everything you were saying about ether the asset 
being sort of the the underlying reserve asset of this whole decentralized economy. I don't think that the market has fully appreciated that and priced that in. And if you look at some of the charts back in 2015, they didn't really appreciate that about Bitcoin either. So back in the first five years of, of Bitcoin's existence, uh, the narratives were a little bit different. Um, yeah, Bitcoin as a, as, a, as a digital gold was part of it, but it was a tiny part of it. A lot of the narrative was around Bit, Bitcoin being used as a peer-to-peer uh, cash system. So a, a payment system, if you will, a transactional system, and the, the value of Bitcoin being used to pay for block space was a huge part of the value proposition. But that started to split off in 2017. And for the past three years, we've seen a, a massive delta between the, the market of, of Bitcoin uh, block space use and the market of Bitcoin, the asset. Bitcoin has been uh, has sort of blasted away from that, and the asset is valued far more than the network is valued because it's established itself as a store of value asset. That happened in the second five years of Bitcoin's life, not the first. And now we're approaching the second five years of Ethereum's life and Ether, the asset's life. And it feels to me that that second narrative, uh, that you know, second area where Ether is undervalued might start to kick in. People might start to see this more as a speculative, non-sovereign you know, store of value asset that's going to be important to the future of money. I believe it was Chris Berniski who, who said this a, a while ago, but he talked about how Ether is in its uh, 2015 bear market for Bitcoin, uh, where in, in Bitcoin in 2015, uh, it was not certain. And in the same... In, it was not certain that Bitcoin was going to be what it is today. Uh, there, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of doubts. Uh, people were not uh, sure about the future of Bitcoin. Uh, but at the same time, there were still some believers that saw this coming, right? Saw that the fundamentals of Bitcoin uh, were destined to improve. And that's exactly what happened uh, in the following two to three years. Uh, you know, the, the 2013 bubble popped and it was this slow, drawn out bear market. Uh, where there were definitely some fundamentals building, like companies were building on Bitcoin, but um, it was just uncertain. And Ether is, and he, Chris Berniski said that Ether is in that same bear market, right? There's this very long, very slow, drawn out, uh, brutal bear market where um, people w- were really doubtful about the the long term certainty of of Ether and Ethereum. Um, fortunately, uh, things are. Like we've talked about in previous episodes, these fractal patterns repeat, but they're not always the same. And because we saw Bitcoin come out of it, there's a lot more indication that we're going to see Ethereum come out of it. And people like like me and you, Ryan, are really beating this drum talking about how the fundamentals of Ethereum are really going to carry it forward. And there's really not too much to be un- uncertain about. Uh, and so we are Ethereum is in its big bear market where it's just getting hammered by Bitcoin maxis telling it telling all Ethereum ETH heads that it's totally worthless. But uh, me and me and Ryan are here to fight back and say, like, look at these amazing fundamentals. Uh, and so I'm extremely optimistic about the future. I wake up every single day saying, like, man, the future of Ethereum is going to be sick. I can't wait for it to show up. Uh, and I still feel that to this day. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's hard not to be bullish when you see data like this, for sure. Uh, of course, this could take a long time to play out. And, um, you know, it's a thesis. So we could be wrong on it. Um, but take a look at the data for yourself and and come to your own conclusions on that. Another thesis that we've talked about in the past that we're seeing some more evidence for is the protocol sync thesis. So we went over this in episode 12. And just last week, a week and a half ago, um, Crypto.com, which is a non-custodial crypto bank, actually took a step to to proving this thesis. At least, you know, in my mind, they rolled out a non-custodial wallet. So previously, Crypto.com primarily facilitates uh, lending and borrowing in a in a custodial way. So you have to deposit your assets, whether it's Ether or Bitcoin or Dai. Uh, with them. You have to give up your private keys. They essentially become your bank. But they took their first first step in releasing a totally non-custodial, non-banked app that you can deposit Bitcoin and Ether into. So you own the private keys. And it seems like they are starting the process of rolling out DeFi protocols as well on top of that. So 
David, is this the, the protocol sync thesis playing out? This is absolutely the protocol sync thesis with a healthy dose of settlement assurances as well. Non-custodianship is settlement assurances. It's you get the assurances that the centralized company that you're storing your assets with can't mess with your funds. You get the assurances that your funds will be available to you and to you alone, which makes the crypto.com offering much more compelling. It's much less of a crypto bank and much more of a be your own bank. Uh, and so crypto.com, what they're doing is they're saying, uh, we are going to go with a settlement or we are going to follow along with these protocol sync thesis because we want to be dense. And that makes uh, our users and future customers able to depend on us as infrastructure into the future. Uh, and so there's no, even if crypto.com goes away, you still have your assets uh, and, and they don't go away with crypto.com. And so because of these assurances, crypto.com's product is simply better. Uh, and then, like, like you said, Ryan, they're just rolling out DeFi apps on top of that. And the reason why they can do that is because they can depend on DeFi apps being there, especially the ones with strong settlement assurances and that are super dense that fall to the bottom of the protocol sink. Uh, anything that you can depend and rely on gets customers because you can depend and rely on it. Uh, and so this is just the protocol sync thesis playing out. This I'm really glad that we we put out that episode because this this it's already been super useful so many times over ever since uh, ever since we released it. Yeah, I heard someone call it the new fat protocol uh, thesis just last week, and I I think it's really a thesis for how this entire crypto space and everything in DeFi uh, plays out. And the beauty of it is, these crypto banks like Crypto.com, you know, slick marketing. Uh, really seamless onboarding experience, but they become the recruiting mechanism and the onboarding experience to all of the other DeFi protocols. So that crypto.com app, maybe it'll be a year, maybe it'll be less, but I bet they will add a deposit your die to the die savings rate button within their app. And in a really seamless way, somebody who's a crypto.com user and kind of new, doesn't know DeFi, um, but they've connected their bank account to crypto.com. They've got that fiat on-ramp. They can just click a button and start using DeFi protocols. And what have we done? We just onboarded someone else to the bankless movement and the bankless system. That's really what we were talking about too with uh, the Winklevoss twins, right, David? Like, you know, they see Gemini as basically a bridge, an interface layer for money protocols. So they're the user experience that they, they provide the, you know, regulatory uh, quarterbacking, if you will, to, to hold kind of the regulators at bay and appease, appease them <laughs> and provide a safe experience. Right. Um, but what, what are they doing? They're onboarding the world into DeFi protocols, into bankless. They're onboarding the world first into Bitcoin and ether and assets like that. But then they're eventually going to start to incorporate these more dense assets uh, or these more dense money protocols like the die savings rate. Uh, it feels like the future to me. Uh, <laughs> we'll see, right? But I mean, it feels like the thesis is starting to play out in real time. I, I really enjoy the fact that uh, all of these different centralized companies like Gemini, uh, Crypto.com, Zerion is a good one. Like they are all interfaces for the same protocols. And that's really what makes up a good protocol is that you can find it wherever you go on the internet. You know. One day you'll be able to access Uniswap through Coinbase, Gemini, Crypto.com, Zerion, you know, even Uniswap.exchange where you would find it normally. But protocols appear everywhere, right? Like they're part of the substrate and they just appear, you know, poking through the earth and wherever you find wherever you go. Uh, and that's what makes a good protocol is it's dependably found no matter what. Uh, so, yeah, I'm super bullish about this. All right, let's take a moment and pause and tell you about our bankless sponsors. These are some fantastic tools for you. Ave is a DeFi lending and borrowing platform with some new cool features that you might not be used to compared to other uh, borrowing and lending applications on Ethereum. Uh, first and foremost, the feature that stands out to me the most is their fixed interest uh, loans. And so, you know, variable interest loans can get pretty hairy, right? So MakerDAO launched at 0.5% and then it slowly skyrocketed, it slowly ramped up to 20%, which is, which is a very wide range of possible interest rates. And it's not really sustainable for, you know, some of the more typical things. And so that's where Aave comes in with their stable, non-variable interest rates where you can lock in a specific interest rate and borrow against, uh, borrow assets using that interest rate and being able to depend on that fixed interest rate. Really important 
a really important money Lego that we need in the DeFi space to really have DeFi grow and mature in a dependable way. But that's not all you can do. You can also do flash loans on Aave, which is also a brand new money Lego where you can borrow uh, you can borrow assets at without any collateral so long as you also repay it back in the same transaction. Uh, so there's a lot of potential here in case you want to, you have collateral in one application that you want to pay back, but then open up that same, uh, a, a similar vault or some, if you want to pay back collateral, but open up a different loan with different collateral, you can do that all in one transaction without all the slippage costs. So Aave and their flash loans allow you to do that. They are the number four biggest application in DeFi coming in at 70 million locked in DeFi right now. Uh, the bankless community really loves Aave. And how, how do I how do I slip in that we've been pushing them up, up the... Uh, and we've just been watching Aave climb the ranks of the, of the DeFi market cap. So check them out at Aave.com. Deposit crypto to start earning or borrowing. Any Ethereum wallet will work. So try it out. I want to introduce you to a new sponsor on the Bankless podcast, uh, Maltus. Maltus is a way to run your business without a bank. So we talk a lot about the Bankless lifestyle from a personal perspective, but what if you could run your entire business without a bank? That's what Maltus provides. It's the first ever Bankless bank account for entrepreneurs who want to use crypto and traditional stablecoin currencies to run their business. So it has a multi-signature wallet. That means you can give teams access controls. One person can have the ability to withdraw from an account, set limits. So it has a multi-signature wallet. That means teams can get involved here. You can set access controls. You can take your stable coins and some of your assets, and you can earn interest with various money protocols while you have them parked inside of the Maltus account. You can streamline payments. They're also adding fiat on-ramps, so there'll be a bridge to traditional finance with US dollars and euros. You can open an account. This is super easy to do. We've actually featured it and written about it on Bankless. We will include an article in the show notes. But what you need to do now is open an account and try it out at www.maltis.co. So that's M-U-L-T-I-S dot co. And of course, we've got something for Bankless listeners Maltus is brand new. Their newest release is, is, is new. They're on waiting list mode only now, but listeners of the podcast can jump the queue when you enter Bankless Podcast in the form when you sign up. So make sure you do that. Enter Bankless Podcast and you'll be able to skip the queue. You'll get a one month free trial of Maltus. If you are a business trying to go bankless, this is the way to do it. That's maltus.co. Check it out. Okay, Ryan, here's a cool one that I'm really into. Uh, MKR, the token that governs the MakerDAO system, just got added to Coinbase uh, today, this morning, as we are recording. Uh, so that's that's super interesting to me. Uh, the, the things that I think about is that's a really bold move by Coinbase because people have been hesitant around adding MKR, especially to exchanges because of the nature of the MKR token. Uh, people think that the buyback and burn model turns it into something like a security. Uh, now, I've never heard any official legal opinion as to what MKR is in regards to a security or not, but we have seen uh, different companies kind of be hesitant with adding MKR onto their platform uh, because it's security-like quality. So like that's why you don't find it in set protocol. Um, that's probably why you don't find it on any other exchange inside of the US, but Coinbase is is rolling with it and just integrating it right into the platform. And the reason why this is so important is because, you know, MakerDAO is kind of like a, a private bank in a sense, like it's a bank governed by shareholders. And the difference between shareholders of the traditional sense, where you see like a big room with a bunch of dudes sitting at a table, shareholders in this sense is whoever owns the MKR token. And it's really important that the MKR token is accessible globally and easily. And so getting it onto an exchange makes governance over the MKR system as free and accessible as buying Bitcoin and buying Ether. And that's really the difference between, you know, uh, equity over a company that you can't 
have access to no matter what, especially the voting shares tokens versus something like MKR where it's uh, governance over the protocol is available on the open market. And all you need to have is the capital to provide skin in the game. Uh, and so having MKR accessible via more and more mechanisms is, is really yeah, I'm, is really fundamentally important to how the protocol works because everyone deserves the right to be a governor over MakerDAO. And that's exactly what Coinbase is uh, enabling by putting MKR onto their exchange. Yeah, it really is the birth of a new asset class, a capital asset that has all of its cash flows on-chain and is settled completely on-chain rather than off-chain in the legal system. So everything that happens with respect to fees earned, revenue earned, and essentially uh, a portion of that revenue used to, to burn maker tokens, that all happens not in legal meat space, but settled on the Ethereum chain. So that is a new type of capital assets, one with on-chain cash flows. And I really think th this Coinbase move is is a further move into the protocol sync thesis, not to get back to that again, but um, not only are they listing Maker in, and adding additional liquidity for Maker, which is good for the, the Maker uh, decentralized central bank, if you would, uh, if you will, but they they are also starting to incorporate other features. So the ability to actually vote with your maker tokens in the governance process. So making that seamless within right now, it's on the, the Coinbase custody side. So it requires being an accredited investor and some of these other details, but I bet they will open that up as they can in the future. And essentially Coinbase is providing a nice interface for us to do on-chain governance of some of these money protocol systems. So they're becoming an interface to governance of DeFi as well. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I like that you brought that up. Uh, MakerDAO, its its shield is the value of MKR, right? And not only the value of MKR, but the liquidity of MKR. And so on, on days like Black Thursday, uh, where MKR needed to have been minted, as a result of Black Thursday events where uh, MakerDAO lost some collateral and was a little bit underwater, MKR needed to be minted and sold to the market. And if MKR is on markets like Coinbase, this makes MKR more liquid and allows MakerDAO to have to mint less MKR to achieve the same result. So this is you know, a really strong defensive barrier for MakerDAO, the system. The more liquid MKR is, the stronger the backstop is then, and that ultimately protects DAI and keeps DAI at a dollar. Um, so this is just the MakerDAO system spreading its roots and integrating itself into the world via these exchanges. And hopefully Coinbase is just the first of many. Yeah. And while we're talking about governance, I, I'm i actually curious your thoughts here, David, because uh, I, I truly like, don't know. So we were talking about maker on-chain governance, right? The ability to essentially you take your, your maker stake and, and you can vote. That's what on-chain governance is. You get to control aspects of the, the, the protocol through a coin vote. There are some new base layer blockchains that are incorporating on-chain governance as part of their system. So Polkadot is one rolled out last week. It has on-chain governance baked in. So the more dots you have, the more you can change the direction of the of the protocol. You can influence issuance, for example. You could decide to create a proposal and vote on it to issue more tokens for a specific um, you know, investment that that you want to make inside of the the polka dot economy. What's your take on that? Is on-chain governance a good thing or a bad thing? Well, let's go back to the protocol sync thesis, the, the thesis that keeps on giving. Um, if there is on-chain governance, that is a commitment to have a vehicle, a pathway for changing the protocol. That's the whole point of on-chain governance is that you want your protocol to be nimble and to be ready to change. Uh, that's the same thing with the Tezos blockchain as well. Like Tezos is also on-chain voting, which means that they can change the protocol as they see fit. And, you know, there's there's benefits to that. Like you know, it's, there's always benefits to being nimble and being able to respond to the environment. However, if we are looking through the lens of the protocol sync thesis, on-chain governance uh, reduces people's ability to depend on the protocol. Uh, maximum social scalability, the ability for these systems like Bit Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other protocols, on-chain or off-chain governance, the ability for these systems to scale up to, to be used by the entire globe, everyone, is really a function of how dependable these systems are. 
And if on-chain governance is a mechanism for changing the protocol, that is going to reduce people's ability to depend on them staying the way that it is. Uh, and Bitcoin is the ultimate instantiation of this, right? So Bitcoin doesn't fork. And all updates to Bitcoin nodes require what's called backwards compatibility, which means that the first node ever running on Bitcoin is still in alignment with all the other nodes that are also running on Bitcoin. Even though there might be different software, the nodes still work with each other. And if you update the protocol, that breaks that. And that this is what Bitcoin is really, really harping on. They want, always want the network to be able to talk to each other. That's one of the fundamental values of Bitcoin. And I believe you and me, Ryan, we also want that to be true for Ethereum one day after we innovate and get all the technological uh, innovations of these crypto systems into Ethereum. That's also what we want with Ethereum, right? We don't want to be forking every six months because that reduces the density of Ethereum. We want eventually Ethereum to calcify and be dependable. On-chain governance flies in the face of this thesis. It says that we are going to change and we are going to have a commitment to changing by on-chain voting mechanisms, which means that you know users of these, of these applications won't know what the protocol is like in one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And so it really threatens the store of value narrative because store of values, store of value assets require long-term thinking and any, any protocol changes uh, threaten that. Yeah, we're actually in closer alignment than, than I thought on that, David. So, so I think what you're saying is through the lens of the protocol sync thesis, if you have on-chain governance on your base protocol, you're a less dense protocol and you're maybe not even dense enough to sync to, to, to the bottom uh, of the world economy and uh, create a reserve asset that's a that's a store of value, and I think like if people think about this for a minute, they can sort of see why. So if you are in a network with on-chain governance, and the the folks with the most capital hold the most uh, Tezos or or hold the most um, dots in a given network, if they can by vote through the social contract of the system and through the, the formal governance of the system, vote to issue more or less of an asset, basically at a whim, I mean, what you have is a, a, a plutocracy. It doesn't feel a whole lot better than the existing system of you know the Fed and 12 guys from different areas of the country, different banks setting rates. I mean, it feels maybe even worse because there's no democratic elected accountability it's like oligarchs and capitalists and plutocrats running the show like that doesn't feel like a uh, base money system that you want to scale to to the world uh so what has to happen i think if we're looking at this through the lens of the protocol sync thesis is that networks go the way that bitcoin you know has gone which is no on-chain governance and you eventually ossify and Ethereum is in the process of ossifying now. Now, it's taking a longer time to ossify because it's essentially adding two things. It's adding one, this whole notion of programmability, but second, this, this whole notion of uh, scalability so that it can be a, a more scalable base layer and you know for, for, for the world. So it can be a more scalable base layer for the world, but its path is eventually to ossify and not change and not be subject to the, the whims of ETH whales who hold their tokens. They shouldn't be able to print more Ether. Uh, so th that to me seems like a base qualification to compete as a reserve money store of value for the world. And if you have on-chain governance, uh, it's, it's hard for me to see how you're competing on that dimension. I remember a few, a few years ago, there was the, the issue of net neutrality going around the internet where institutions like Comcast and you know, uh, AT&T and, and all these massive internet giants wanted to uh, remove net neutrality and allow for the throttling of some websites in the benefit of others. And uh, you know, the, the people of the world, especially the people of the United States, vehemently rejected that that concept and that is because of the protocol density of the internet like the protocol sync thesis doesn't only work for crypto systems the internet is a is a internet is a the internet is a protocol and it's more importantly a protocol without governance and what the what comcast and these other big internet gargantuans wanted to wanted to do is they wanted to govern over the internet and say like okay we want to be able to choose who to throttle and who not to and that was the whole issue of the of the internet neutrality issue. And 
having a on-chain voting mechanism is commitment to non-neutrality. And that is the opposite of the protocol sync thesis. And maybe in an even less generous uh, uh, criticism of things like Polkadot or things like on-chain governance, the incentive system is totally fucked up, right? Because you you have these you know massive VC, VC funds who are, are who are investing millions and millions and millions of dollars because of the incentive to buy something that can be governed. Like imagine if the internet had this governance token. Uh, it would just be bought up by the large head funds of the world. And then we would just have this internet protocol that is just managed by these people with a ton of capital. And it wouldn't be the internet that we have today, this free, fair, and open internet. It would be something else. Uh, and so, you know, shame on all the VC firms who thought that they could just buy their way into this protocol that they thought would just like turn into the, the what Ethereum really is, is this settlement network for the internet. Uh, and then they would just be able to be the gargantuans behind like this new internet. Like, no, that's not happening. And the people reject it. And that's why we're, that's why Ethereum is, is strictly a non on-chain governance system. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think one, one way to say this is the future of the internet of money will not be owned by Andreessen Horowitz. That cannot be the case. That is not what the people want. Guys, this has been a special edition of Bankless. This has been a bonus edition that we're providing you. I hope you enjoyed it. Guys, risks and disclaimers. Of course, everything that we talked about with respect to ETH is risky. So price may not go up. We have no idea what the, the short-term direction will be crypto is risky DeFi is risky the protocols we talked about are also risky but we are headed west we are on the frontier this isn't for everyone but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey thanks a lot what uh what non-custodianship is non-custodianship is that real i think that's real i think you made it up but you know real you're like we're, no, it's real. I mean, we're, we're, we're rolling with it oh good 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 okay <laughs> um I'm definitely putting that in the bloopers. <laughs>